Father, as we come to you today, we thank you for the, uh, the incredible work that, uh, that you did through your son on the cross for our sins. Lord, as we've been singing about that already this morning, we've just declared to you the truth of your word that, that you sent your one and only son into the world. You came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, for we could never pay the penalty that was due for our sin. You did for us, Lord, something that was impossible, humanly impossible, intellectually impossible, God, physically impossible. Jesus, when you came and you laid down your life for us on the cross, you defeated sin. And then you defeated death, Lord, from the grave. And we thank you this morning that we live in light of this life that we have, this hope that we have, that we can truly have, Lord, an abundant life here on earth. And we can have the promise of an eternal life and eternity. And God, we, we live in light of that today. Lord, as we come into this room to de- together this morning, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your power. We thank you that we don't walk around and live and make decisions and lead our families and raise kids, lead our businesses in a state, Lord, of just emptiness. Lord, your word promises that you are always near to those who follow you. You are always with us. You never leave us. You never abandon us. You never, Lord, walk away from us. Your eyes are upon us. We thank you that you, Lord, are always present, that you are always powerful, that you are always, Lord, near to us, God, to help us and enable us, Lord, to live the life you've called us to live that, Lord, just seems so impossible to live at times. But God, you are there with us. And so we thank you this morning for not only being with us individually, but being with us corporately. For God, we are together as a congregation this morning. We are together in this place today, knowing that you are here with us. We do not just pray to empty space, God. You are here. And we are so unworthy to be in your presence today. We've sinned. We've broken trust, we've said things to you and yet turned our back and done something else or said something different. God, we've taken our minds off of you, we've made decisions without consulting you. Lord, there's so many things, God, that we've done to you that contradict what we know to be true about the Bible, what we know to be true about you. We weigh, Lord, your holiness and your perfection and your beauty against our sin and our brokenness. Lord, it doesn't even compare. We just confess and repent of sin this morning, individually in our lives, God, things that, Lord, are in our hearts and our lives, God. We just lay these things at your feet because we know that we are met with a God who does meet us where we are. You already know these things. Lord, you come and you forgive, you come and you restore, you come and you redeem. Lord, this is what you do. We don't understand that, but this is what your word says, and we try to get our minds around that understanding, but God, we can't. But we trust and we believe it by faith. We're here today, Lord, just to declare our obedience to you, our allegiance to you, God, as a people. 
as your people. For Lord, even though we can't compare our minds and our hearts and our lives to you and your perfection and your holiness, Lord, your word says that you declare us holy because that's what your word says when we trust and we surrender our lives over to you, Jesus. You, Lord, declare us holy and then you make us holy. You, you, you pull out of our lives the things that need to be pulled out. You begin to add things to our hearts and our lives that need to be added to them, Lord. And you fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit and you enable us to bear spiritual fruit and to please you and to glorify you in our words and in our actions, Lord, in our attitude, in our thoughts. We want to be spiritual people, God. And so what we ask you this morning, that that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your power. Fill us with your presence, God. Because we know that you indwell the hearts of your people. You dwell in the hearts and minds of your people collectively as a church. And so, Lord, we are here today. We ask and need and desperately need your Holy Spirit to move in us and through us and help us to see the things you want us to see from your word and understand them, Lord, and to respond accordingly because, God, you tell us when we come to your word, we never leave it without you calling us to action, without you calling us, God, to to change, without calling us to to greater faith in you, Lord, and we want that, we desire that, We, we plead for that, so, Lord, help us, enable us to live this life and to see the things that you want us to see from your word this morning. So, God, we lay this before you today as a people desperately in need of you, as a people, Lord, and desperately in need of your work in our hearts and in our lives. So, Lord, take this word that we open in front of us, and God, just use it to change us because there is power in your word. We believe that. We give this time to you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning once again. I want you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Joshua chapter 9. We're going to be in Joshua 9, and you're going to see the second half of the story that we introduced last Sunday morning, which was the first half of Joshua 9. Today, we're going to look at the second half of this story, and we're going to focus in on the, uh, the verses 16 through 27. We're going to be looking this morning at walking in the wake of consequences. There are certainly consequences to bad decisions that we make in our lives, right? Years ago, back before, now listen, don't you teachers, you know, don't fall out on me here, okay, those you school teachers, but back before when you could take a pocket knife to school, that's right, you like how we start this message with pocket knives, back when you could take a pocket knife to school, and yes, you could do that, students, kids, I was in ninth grade, and I had a pocket knife in my pocket, and I was on a... Uh, football, uh, it was a Friday night, or I don't even remember what it was. Friday night, we were going to a practice or a game or something. But I want you to picture yourself in one of those school buses. You know, you don't have bucket seats and all this stuff, seat belts and all that. You just have these big benches, right, in front of you. And so I had the brilliant idea of as a ninth grade kid, in all of my boredom, I pulled out this little pocket knife that I had on me, And I decided, you know what? That back of that seat really needs my initials in it. And so, like, that was, like, it really needed to happen. And so, I chose to take my knife out, and I started carving into that, you know, fake leather. It was like a green kind of faux leather-looking kind of back of a seat on a school bus. I'm in there, man. I'm carving it. 
I'm in that thing. But what I don't know is that my head football coach is two seats behind me. And he's now standing, which I don't realize, and he's just like this. He's watching me in there, get my initials in there. It was a pretty bad decision. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll just leave it there. The next few practices were not fun. The conversation with my dad wasn't fun. Uh, paying for the repair of the seat wasn't fun for a ninth grader trying to work, uh, not having a lot of jobs. Do we make mistakes in our lives? Everybody say yes. Yeah, we make mistakes. Sometimes the mistakes that we make, of course, the sins that we commit in our lives outside of God's will, when we step outside of God's will, aren't they bad at times? Yes, they are. In fact, sometimes in our lives, listen, there are things that we are forever marked with. I mean, you can right your wrongs, and we're called to right our wrongs, but sometimes you have to deal with the collateral damage of your own decision-making. I've had to deal with the collateral damage of my own decision-making on the lives of other people, Right? I mean, there are things, there are people, there are situations, there are relationships, there are businesses, there are, uh, you name it, there are people around you, there are things around you that have been forever affected, and you just can't, as much as you try to clean up aisle seven of your life, you can't clean all of that mess up. Am I right? We have to live with that. We, we try to right our wrongs and we make the mistakes that we make in our life and we sin in our life and we try to, to, to go back and we try to right those relationships. We apologize, we, we ask for forgiveness, all of those things, but we sometimes have to live with the consequences to the bad mis- decisions and the bad mistakes that we make in our lives. When we are forever marked and we are forever marked by the poor decisions in our life, we're not... We're not uh, identified by that. When you come to Christ and you, for, you, know, you, you confess your sin, you, you, you repent of your sin, you start to follow Jesus with your life, you are not marked as this fill in the blank. You are a child of God. You are forgiven. You no longer have to walk around with guilt. However, we have to deal with the consequences, don't we? Sometimes those consequences last for the rest of our lives. What do you do? in light and in the wake of those consequences. What does the Lord expect you to do? I think that's an important question. Think about this story with me. We introduced it last Sunday, beginning of chapter 9. The Gibeonites are a people that are within the promised land. They are Canaanites. And if you think about it, as we've walked through this on this Sunday morning, you, you remember that, the, that there, was a, there was a problem going on among God's people. The people of God had followed their own hearts instead of consulting the wisdom of God. That's bad news. I mean, whenever you step out and and you start following your own heart, following your own feelings, following your own actions, well, this person said it's okay for me to do this, or the culture says it's okay for me to do this, or I really feel in my heart I should be doing this, and so I step out and do that, that's a recipe for disaster. Because our hearts lead us all over the place. Our feelings are up here, and they're over here, and they're over here, and they're over here every day. I feel this way, I feel that way, I feel this person, feel this way, I feel that way, and, and I'm really good at finding people, and sometimes the enemy himself will bring people into my life that will fan the flames of my own heart. When I follow my own heart, when I, when I start to follow man's wisdom, which is really what it is, over the wisdom of God, things end badly, which leads us to sin oftentimes in our life, and that's exactly where God's people are in chapter 9. 
You know, last Sunday we saw, and we've been looking in the last few Sundays about how God's people, they following, have followed these incredible victories over Jericho and then Ai, these two city-states. They've taken the city-states. They're continuing to march into the promised land. They're not doing it in their own strength. Whose strength are they doing it in? God's strength. I mean, God's the one bringing the victory. They're barely picking up the swords in order for the cities to fall. Now, they finished the job, but God already brought the victory when he declared it. But after these victories, they fail God again, and they're deceived. Remember last Sunday morning, they're deceived at the beginning of chapter 9. You've got this group of people, and they realize, and they figure out a plan. They know they can't beat Israel and God who can beat God, right? They, they know they can't beat God, and they know they can't beat Israel, and so what do they do? They come up with a plan to lie against them, and they say, hey, we're not from the Canaan. We're not from Canaan. We're not from this area. We're like very far away, and so they put on the clothes. You know, they, they mess their hair up. Uh, they throw some dirt on their faces. They get all of their belongings to make sure they're really old and they're about to fall apart, and they, I mean, they, they lay it on the Israelites, and the Israelites take it, hook, line, and sinker. Joshua and himself. Because why? They don't consult God. And, and so they, they, they lie, they deceive, they pretend to be people from outside of the promised land. But it tells us in chapter 9, verse 14, here's the real problem. This is the key verse in the first half of that chapter. You can look at it in your Bibles. It says, so the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. You ought to highlight that, underline it. Because that's the key. You see the story, the first half of the story. They didn't seek God's counsel. And so they enter into this peace treaty with the Gibeonites, which they weren't supposed to enter into anyway. Folks, listen, when we follow our own hearts instead of the wisdom of God, it always leads us astray. And the first half of chapter 9 is all about how the Gibeonites um, pretend and respond to Israel. The second half of the stories we're going to see this morning is how Israel reacts and responds to what's happened. So with that being said, let's pray one more time, okay? Let's bow our heads and let's just pray, and we're going to walk through the story this morning. Father, we do pray that your blessing, God, would be upon our time together in your word. Help us, God, to see and hear what you want us to see and hear. God, we want and believe in your grace and mercy. We also believe in your, your wisdom that guides us and directs us, God, as we navigate through our, the consequences and the wake of our consequences of the poor decisions we've made in our lives. So we give this time to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Look with me at your Bibles again, chapter 9, beginning in verse 16. Look at, the, look at your Bibles again. I'm going to read it. It says, at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that, there were, that, that they were their neighbors, bing, and that they lived among them. Imagine hearing about that. Notice that they hear about it. No one tells them. The Gibeonites don't tell them. They hear about it. Wait, what? What just happened? Wait, we just entered into a peace treaty with them? Wait, they're right down the street? Yes, this is what happens. So after this treaty, the Gibeonites go home. They're high-fiving each other. Look what we did. We saved our people. We saved our land. We, we saved our city-state. We saved his, our, our, our people from the Israelites and God. It worked. Can you believe and believe it worked? I mean, can you imagine what their conversations were like? 
man, you really poured it on, and I really liked your costume. I really liked how you presented yourself. I can't even believe it worked. Can y'all believe it worked? Can you even imagine what the conversations were like? Gibeonites go home victorious. They've saved their own people. Three days later, word begins to reach Joshua and the leaders. In verse 16, all of a sudden, they begin to open their eyes and they understand that they have been hoodwinked. They're, they're, the, the, the people of the Gibeonites, are one, they're, they're happy in their camp. You've got one camp that's really happy. You've got the Israelites who are not happy in what they believe and what they, or what they see and what they've realized. Israel had cut a deal, had made a treaty, not with someone who was foreign outside of the promised land, but with their neighbors, and this was not good. And so the Israelites begin to advance. Look at verse 17 and 18, and the people of Israel set out and they reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities, now their cities were Gibeon and Shephirah and Beeroth and Kiriath-Jerim. Four cities that we have here. Look at verse 18. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. Now you've got division within the camp. It says in verse 17, of course, that as they begin to march as an army, they're really excited about all that God has done for them in Jericho and how they, they failed at first in Ai, but they came back and they had success again in Ai and the army's moving forward and they get there and set their eyes on this city from a distance. It's not one city, it's actually four cities that are all part of the same kind of group of people. And they set their sights on these, these city-states to take them to continue to do what God wants them to do. They are uh, uh, responding in obedient faith. They're, they're moving forward. And, but what they don't realize is their leaders have cut a deal. And the army has to stop. And they're stopped in their tracks. And they realize they've made this mistake. Because they've taken an oath. People were furious in verse 18. They start to murmur among each other. The army starts to murmur among each other. They're furious. They're complaining. And it becomes tense in the camp, as we can see at the end of verse 18. They had led poorly. Their leaders had had led poorly. They hadn't consulted the Lord in verse 14. They just moved forward and made decisions on their own without even consulting God, and they had been tricked. And so they could not advance. And Israel now is divided, the leaders and the army. They can't engage. They can't continue to fulfill what God had already given to them because they have made this treaty, if you will, or this oath, if you will, with Gibeon. Look at verse 19. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them and said to them, why did you deceive us? Saying, we are very far from you when you dwell among us. Look at verse 23. Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never see or never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and and uh, drawers of water for the house of my God. Leaders lay out the reality, even though there is this treaty that was under false t- pretenses, they've got to live up to the oath. They've got to live up to the, uh, the, the, the deal, right? The deal that they've made with the Gibeonites. 
They still needed to fulfill the agreement. They could not advance in the attack. Why? Because this is different than, listen, buying a like-new car when you get swindled. For example, if you go and you buy a like-new car somewhere down in Houston or up in Lufkin or maybe in town or whatever, wherever you might buy a quote-unquote like-new car, and then you're excited and you get home with it, and it looks beautiful on the outside. It's got a great interior. It looks really nice, but all of a sudden you begin to hear that knocking sound. And you begin to hear something going on inside the engine and it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. And all of a sudden, when you begin to do more and more research on the car, you realize it was flooded. And you're like, that's not what the title said. That's not what I was told. That's not the bill of goods I was sold. And so you take your car back. Why? Because this is not a good agreement. And then you try to take someone to court or whatever you're trying to do in order to get your money back. This isn't like that. You see, what happens here is that they actually bring God into the equation, and that's the importance of oath, and you've got to understand the importance of a peace treaty. You've got to understand the importance of God's name being brought into this agreement, into this relationship. It's entirely and totally different. They carried the name of God into the agreement. That's what an oath is. It's a sacred, and it is an unbreakable word followed through with. That's what an oath is. It cannot be broken. Breaking an oath actually became a sin for God's people. And and this helps us understand Genesis chapter 27. When Isaac Isaac uh, passes on the blessing to his son who? Jacob and Esau. Jacob swindles his, his father. He lies to his father. He comes in acting like he's Esau. And when he comes in acting like he's Esau, he receives the blessing. It can't go be reneged. It can't be switched around. Why? Because it was an oath. It was passed on. God passes on the blessing to Jacob in that space. And we understand that Genesis 27 uh, it comes into better clarity when we understand that, rather. God's people here have a dilemma. They're at a crossroads in some respects. Either they break the law, which was what God told them to do in Deuteronomy chapter 7, not to save anyone in the land, but to continue to move forward and continue to take everyone out, or live out the consequences by honoring the treaty, not misusing God's name. That's the dilemma they have. And so they come up with the leader's plan. Three times at the end of this story, Joshua is going to bring up the fact that if they can't destroy them, then they will reduce them. They will minimize them. They're going to all become servants. That's the plan. You've got to understand that from this time forward, Joshua begins to confront the Gibeonites. Look at verse 24. They answer Joshua, because it was told to your servant for a uh, for certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives, you think, because of you and did this thing. Look at verse 25. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your eyes or sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. There's your decision. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that they should choose and make their decision. Joshua became that day the deliverer of the Gibeonites. 
Joshua and God's people become the ones who, 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 who go to bat for them, protect them in every way. And we're going to see this come about next Sunday when we look in chapter 10, because this is all going to come to bear when they have to begin to defend the Gibeonites, the people that they were very much supposed to annihilate or take out because God had given them this land. God had given them everything, but they couldn't undo their disobedience. That's the point. And so they had to live out the consequences which opened the door to losing, by the way, part of God's blessing that they had been given in the promised land. Now listen, I mean, we're called, listen, we're, we're called to pursue a life where we don't sin. Do you want to sin? Do you want to go outside of God's will and make poor decisions in your life? Do you want to grow and have a bad attitude? Do you want to tell that lie? Do you want to do something even bigger and egregious that creates more collateral damage to more people? Do you want to drive people away from the Lord because of your decision makings? No, of course not. I hope not. But we sin. We make mistakes in our life. We make a mess of, we make a mess of our life at times. But the Bible says we will sin. In fact, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, just very clearly says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We know we are broken. We know we are sinners. We know all of these things exist. We got to call it what it is. I mean, the end of the day, if I'm 95 years old or if I'm 12 years old or 10 years old or 8 years old or however old I am young, or young I am, I've got to call sin for what it is. Anything outside of God's design, anything outside of God's will, anything outside of God's word is sin. And I've got to call it for what it is. I've got to own it. I've got to deal with it. And in light of all of that, what do I do with it? God's very clear to us this morning. We've got to live an obedient life in the wake of consequences. It's as simple as that. If you want to know what God's word says to you and to me this morning, it is to live in obedience, live an obedient life in the wake of consequences. I mean, we understand that there are going to be these consequences to sin in our life, but you can choose obedience even through and by way of living in light of the consequences that may exist there, the damage that has been done. Let me say a few things for us this morning. The fact of the matter is we react to sin's consequences in different ways, don't we? I mean, some of us cover it up. Some of us avoid it. Some of us deny it. Sometimes we cover it up. Just ask Adam and Eve. Just ask King David in the Old Testament. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. These stories of how people, of God's people, covered up the things that they had done. Sometimes we avoid it. We maybe bury it or we are so humiliated and we're embarrassed by what we've done or what we've said and we don't want people to know about it and so we just kind of avoid it and we don't talk about it. We don't want anyone to know about what's happened in our lives or what we've done. We just try to na 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 put our hands in our ears or fingers in our ears and we just move on with our lives. We don't want to we don't want to deal with it and so we avoid it. Sometimes we of course deny it. Uh, we minimize our sin, don't we? We minimize the mistakes that we make in our life. This is our natural human instinct. I do it, and I have done it, and you do it, and you have done it. You deny it. And so we lie to ourselves. Maybe we lie to each other. And that lie turns into a what? A bigger lie. And then we turn into a bigger lie. And then another bigger lie, and a bigger lie, and a bigger lie. And then we can't even remember the truth to begin with, because we've lied so much to ourselves. We tell ourselves, and we're really good at this, telling ourselves things that aren't true. 
And over time, the, those kinds of things that we begin to tell ourselves become this reality in our mind that is a false reality. God knows the truth. Others that have been affected by our sin know the truth. The fact of the matter is there's no end to it. But listen, you cannot undo the damage that has been done to your past. I wish we could. You can make it right, and there's a biblical way to make it right, but at the end of the day, we can't undo it. Y'all know the story, of course, of Pearl Harbor and the historical significance of that event. It was a bad day in the life of our country when our country was attacked in that way. Those of you in more recent years would remember, or if you've read about, for those of you who are younger, past this, this year, and that's 9-11, when people flew planes into the World Trade Center towers in New York City and brought them down. Those of you who were alive and can remember where you were, you remember where you were standing, I do. The fact of the matter is, to this day, you can't go back and forever understand it, undo those two events that so marked our nation we now what? Memorialize them. You can go to Hawaii and you can go and see the USS Arizona, the evidence and the, 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 the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. You can go to New York City today and see the 9-11 memorial and the, the two footprints of the two World Trade Center towers. They stand there forever for us to be reminded of this. It is a forever scar and mark on our nation because of the poor decisions of others, the sin of others that made that decision to attack, attack our country. But here, that's on a big macro level. We see that on a big level but it's the same in our individual lives. We can't undo some of these things. They have these lingering effects at times, don't they? They damage us, they've damaged other people. The damage from sin can't be undone at times, although I wish it could. Naturally and out of convenience, I want to avoid the consequences. I want to just move on with my life. I don't want to think about that anymore at all. I may want that damage to go away, but it's the, the sad thing about it is it sticks in our lives at times. I know it's there. That's the reality. And that's why we have the Word of God. That's why we have the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is such good news. Because your sins don't define you. Because the good news of God is that God takes you and I and the mistakes that we make and the messes that we make of our lives and he steps into that space by way of his son Jesus Christ on the cross and what he did on the cross and from the grave. And what God does is he shows us of his perfection, he shows us of our sin and who we are and then he steps into our life and he says there is a better way. And the only way that you can remove the, 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 the guilt and the, the stain of sin from your life is to surrender your life to someone who is greater than that, who is perfect, who is the perfect Lamb of God, who went to the cross on your behalf and on my behalf. And the Bible says that when I surrender to Him, when I give my life to Him, what He did on the cross is all applied to my life and I am forever forgiven and restored and redeemed. That's the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? You don't walk around with guilt. You don't walk around with all of these stains in your life. You don't walk around being with your head held low, looking at the ground, constantly thinking about all the messes that you made in your life. No, that's the good news of the gospel. That's why some of you need to give your life to him because he wants to come into your life and not only just, just fill your life with his forgiveness and truth, but he wants to restore your life and set you on the course, on a pathway of living a, a, a very free and, 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 and righteous life that you're pursuing him now forgiven, 
That's the beauty of it all. But here's the thing. You can choose to honor God with obedience as you live out the consequences to the mistakes that you've made. You see, our sin doesn't define us. Your sin doesn't define you. The mistakes that you made in your past do not define you. But the consequences are still there. And you can live an obedient, free life in light of that. The Bible says that you confess your sins, you repent of your sins. And when you do that, and I'll bring us back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. You are clean in the eyes of God. Now, you still got to deal with that wake, that wake of consequence. What do you do? I wish we could just rewind the clock and say, I wish I didn't do that when I was 15 or 16 or 25 or 35 or 50, whatever that is. You, I wish I didn't do that. I wish I didn't say that on Friday when I left the office. I wish I hadn't looked at that on my phone. I, I wish I hadn't made that bad decision when I was younger, but it did, and you did. So what do you do with it? Well, you can live a life of honoring God with obedience. You see, every time you sin, you come to a, you face a crossroads. What are you going to do with it? You're going to honor the Lord or you're not going to honor the Lord? It's a decision that we see contrasted in the life of King David. Stay with me. And King Saul. You know these two figures from the Old Testament? I mean, King David was a man after God's own heart, remember? That's how he's described. I want to be described like that, don't you men? I want to be described as a man who is pursuing God, a, a, a man who is wanting what God wants for his life, who wants to pursue the things that God is passionate about and loves and, and, and moving away from the things that God doesn't love. I want to be a man after God's own heart, not stuff, not action, but getting God, understanding him, pursuing him in every respect. That's the kind of man I want to become. Don't you men want to become that? David was a man after God's own heart, and yet he, we see and understand he sins, right, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We find him sinning in the area of adultery and in the area of murder. I mean, those are two big deals, am I right? So he sins in the arena of adultery and murder, and it takes Nathan the prophet to go to him and say, you're the man. You're the one who is the offending party here. You've offended God in every respect. And so in the, in the midst of that, in the space of that, what does has, has, happens in light of the affair with Bathsheba, there's a child. There's a child that's going to be born. And it tells us at the end of chapter 12 that in the light of this child that's going to be born, it tells us in verse 15 of chapter 12, 2 Samuel, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife, Uriah's the man, that David took his wife and then later had he murdered and he became sick. And David throughout therefore sought God on behalf of the child and David fasted and he went in and he laid all night on the ground and the elders of the house stood beside him to raise him. Imagine the pain that he was experiencing knowing that the reason his child is sick is because of his own sin. And all that he's gone through and all that he's dealing with internally in his life, he's laying it before the Lord. And on the seventh day, the child dies. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, 
We spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How can we say this to him? The child is dead and he may do himself some harm. The child dies. God then restores his life. Understand this, that when he pins Psalm 51 and then he later pins Psalm 30, 32, he understands that God has broken him of his sin. And yet in Psalm 32, David declares the forgiveness of God and his, the beauty of forgiveness of his life. And David turns and pivots to follow God with his life again. In light of the consequences, in light of all of the damage that he's done in his life, in light of the fact that Uriah is now dead, Bathsheba, who is his now wife, he entered into an affair with, a child is dead. In light of all of that, he's going to honor God. Now, compare that to Saul, who is the first king of Israel. And Saul, Saul, who is God's king over his people in 1 Samuel chapter 13, chooses not to wait on the Lord's plan, but to jump ahead of the Lord and go ahead and do what he was not supposed to do. And he moves ahead of God. He moves ahead of the prophet. He moves ahead of God's plan, Samuel. And so he decides to go at it on his own. And in the end, Saul is driven mad in jealousy of David because God takes the kingdom away from Saul and gives it to David. Two entirely different directions he could take in his life. Saul, who chooses not to honor God, and David, who chooses to honor God, both fail. Both carry out consequences. There is the path of brokenness that leads to godly sorrow and to repentance, and then there is the pathway of pride and self-reliance. One leads to being restored, one leads to being destroyed. You see these two examples, and what are we to do, right? You see, you and I are called to live as though we have been rescued by Jesus Christ, which we have, and then we in turn turn around and we lead people to being rescued to Jesus himself. And when we fail, and we will, and you will, you are met with a father who loves you, a father who welcomes you when you come back to him. You're not met with a God who condemns you, but a God who wants to restore you. When you come to him and you confess and you repent and you turn back to the Lord, God brings this work and does this work in your life. So it doesn't matter how sin has affected your life. It doesn't even matter the sin and how it's affected the lives of other people, you see. Because long before you sinned, God knew you would sin. And he's there when you come to him. God knows the beauty in all of this is that there is, you are not met with a God who, of condemnation. You're met with a God of grace and you're met with a God of mercy in your life. He doesn't take away the consequences of the mistakes that we make. Sometimes those write. Sometimes they're minimized in the sense that, that they write themselves. But sometimes those things continue to, to, to linger on for the rest of our lives. But he takes away the guilt and he does take away the shame from your life. And I love this verse out of Romans chapter 8. Paul reminds us in Romans 8 chapter 1, or chapter 8 verse 1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, you can walk around with not your head held low, but with your eyes up. Why? Because you have been redeemed. And God looks at your life and he does not condemn your life. He does not condemn who you were and the mistakes that you made in your life or what the shit you made on a Friday afternoon. And here we are Sunday. 
When you come to him and you do things his way, God steps into your life. He does not, you are not met with a God who condemns you, but a God who graciously and mercifully meets you where you are. Chapter 10 in Romans chapter 10 verse 11 says, for the scriptures say everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You know, there are those of you in the room that are struggling. You're just scared or you're guilty. You feel guilty of things that you've done in your past. Maybe you're just dealing with maybe a poor decision that you made when you were angry. Maybe, just maybe, you committed adultery against your spouse in the past. Maybe you lied and no one ever found out about your lie or they did find out about your lies and it led to other lies and other lies and other lies and you just regret and you wish you could go back and you're struggling with either fear or guilt for these things. Maybe you struggled in the past with pornography, things of that nature. Maybe an abortion that no one knows about. You're dealing with that kind of guilt, shame. You don't want anyone to know about it because you're so embarrassed by it. You see, the devil keeps you there. That's where he keeps you. He keeps you at a place where you hope no one finds out about these things. He keeps you at a place of accusation and deception. He's really good at it. He's the best at it. He deceives your heart. He deceives your mind. And he, 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 he wants to tell you, yeah, God loves you. God, for, God forgives you. But at the moment in which you begin to deal with that issue in your life, or you begin to, to really deal with it in the area of you struggling with, a, with guilt, and you start to feel a little bit less guilty because you're starting to trust God in the moment, he brings you right back. Three in the morning, you wake up. You hear something on the radio, you hear a sermon, whatever it is, you're right back to that bondage. But God extends grace, he extends mercy as you live in the wake of those consequences. There is freedom, listen, not bondage. There is forgiveness, not guilt. When you're in Christ, you stand pardoned, not accused. That's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. This is how God looks into your life, steps into your life. And guess what? The Lord will then use you in the lives of other people to bear testimony of his goodness and his grace, even when you're living in the wake of consequences. The church I served at years ago, my wife and I were at that church. We became friends with this couple and this family in the church. She had had an abortion when she was younger between the two couple and before they had become followers of Jesus Christ and they had followed through with this decision. And it had haunted them for years. It had haunted them for decades until they dealt with it. When it came out in the open and they dealt with it and their friends around them and other followers of Jesus Christ, once they had come to faith in Jesus, came around them and just, just helped them understand that this is not God who, who's not defined, this is not what they are defined by, but that God has forgiven, has restored, and there is no shame, there is no guilt. I cannot undo what happened 15, 20 years, whatever it was years ago, but I can now use it to glorify God. And the Lord is still doing that. How many young women that that woman has counseled 
and has led to Christ over the years in light of the ashes and the destruction of an abortion and bringing that destruction and that, those ashes and raising her out of that to a place where God takes us out of that darkness and brings us to light to use it to point people to Jesus Christ. And he is doing it left and right through this couple. How do I live with obedience in light of the wake of the of consequences of my life? Listen, I live faithful and I live submissive. Faithful to the Lord and submissive to his word. Live with an awareness. I want you to live, the Bible wants you to live with an awareness of the temptations in your life. Know where they are, know how, they, how Satan is continuing to impact and influence your life. Live humble and live broken. You cannot live in lockstep with the Lord in your life if you're living self-reliant and arrogant and prideful. Humble yourself, be broken, and live with that kind of a perspective. And listen, I'll say this to us this morning. Live with a passionate and a purposeful life. You live for Christ. You live in light of all that Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross and from the cross. His work has been applied to your life. And when his work has been applied to your life, that is your identity. And you can live purposeful and you can live passionate towards him. And you live in light of his goodness. You live an obedient life in light and in the wake of all of these consequences. You see, when you realize and understand that God's plans are not ruined by human disobedience, then it is a game changer. Because you messed up in your life, because you sinned in your life, the will of God is not affected. God will continue to use you. He will work in your life. He will work through your life. He will accomplish his will even when you fail. Your role and my role is to simply live obedient in the wake of the consequences of our poor decision making. God's people came to a crossroads here in chapter 9. And they chose in that moment to honor the oath and to live in light of the mistakes that they had made. But God wasn't done with them. God didn't come to them and say, I told you back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, I told you so. And take them and say, turn around, go back across the Jordan River, I'm done with you. No. They kept moving forward, and they kept glorifying God. And that's all God calls us to do. Just live obedient. Deal with the things of the past. Deal with the things in the present. And when you sin in the future, deal with it then, and keep moving forward. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Listen, we're going to have a time of response, and we never come to the Word of God without responding to it. I don't know where God has you this morning and where, what God is doing in your heart and your mind this morning, what he's had you thinking about while we've been looking at God's Word. But listen, there's no power in what I say. There's only power in what the Word of God says to you. The power is in the Word. The power is in the Scriptures. However the Spirit of God has been speaking to you and leading you in your life this morning, you need to be responsive to that. We're going to sing a song about grace this morning, and what, no, no better song than to talk about the grace and the mercy of God in light of all of this. Listen, God loves you. I just want you to know that this morning. If you leave here today with one thing to remember, I want you to remember God loves you. He cares so much about you. He loves you. He knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly where you've been. He knows exactly where you're going. Now, all God wants you to do is just deal with the things that that he already knows about. 
So maybe that means confessing, repenting of sin this morning. You can come forward. You can do that here at the front. You can do it where you're sitting. Maybe God's leading you to join our church or be baptized. Maybe God is just needing, wanting you to come and you just need prayer over a particular matter. I'd be happy to pray with you. Or if there's another brother or sister in Christ in this room, someone, you want to go to them this morning and just say, listen, I need somebody to pray with me. Will you pray with me? They would be happy to do that. Whatever God is leading you to do, you need to deal with these things this morning, just as I need to deal with them in my life. Let's be right with God. Let's emerge with victory, because that's what God's called us to be, and the place that God brings us to and leads us to is a a life of victory, a life of forgiveness, a life of restoration. And then we get to share that with others. What a beautiful thing. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to stand and sing. And uh, you have the courage to respond this morning. Father, thank you this morning for your goodness, your grace, your love. We give this time to you and just pray that you would uh, deal with our hearts. Help us, Lord, to say yes to you in the matters, God, that you're calling us to act. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.